Hello and welcome to another episode of the NMA podcast. I'm Natasha Turner, the features editor at NMA, and I'm here with Ollie Smith, online producer. Later on in this episode, uh, Ollie and editor Will will be talking to Henry Tapper, who will tell us all about uh, what's new in regulation news this week. But before that, uh, it's been a pension freedoms frenzy this week, Ollie, hasn't it? It has. What's um, been going on? So we've had this bumper report from the Work and Pensions Select Committee. Um, which hasn't really said anything particularly explosive, but what it has done is to pile yet more pressure on the government about what it's sort of failing to do and really perhaps embarrass it on a couple of issues. So just briefly, uh, it's recommended loads of things, default pathways for decumulation, not really achieved in law yet. Uh, it's clearly dissatisfied with the government monitoring of the pension freedoms. Uh, it's very worried about providers being left to their own devices on sales of drawdown, clearly, um, sort of lack of guidance, availability. Um, and interestingly, it backs robo-advice, which may be particularly interesting for our readers. Overall, I would say that it's a, it's a very deliberately timed attack on the government uh, because it's three years this week since the start of the pension freedom. So, um, it's definitely one to keep an eye on, and I'm sure that as the weeks go on, there'll be a lot more um, discussion about the ideas that they've proposed again. <laughs> what does it mean for advisors? How do you think people are going to take it? Um, I imagine advisors will be reasonably sceptical about some of the recommendations. I mean, if you look at some of the reaction from the provider sector, it's perhaps unsurprising that you know people like Steve Webb, former pensions minister, are saying, well, the... Um, the effect of these reforms would, would be to kind of destroy the spirit of pension freedom. So, and not to say that advisors and the providers are one and the same, but I think uh, they kind of take a sort of very common sense approach, shall we say, to things like over-regulation of the financial space. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd, I doubt whether advisors will be particularly happy um, about, about some of the recommendations. But hey, you know, there are lots of advisors out there that do back things like, um, you know, guidance, because the more people engage with guidance, the more likely they are to engage with ad advice. So, you know, who knows? We'll have to see as the comments come in. Yeah, we'll have to see. And you can read more about this on the website today. Uh, and yes, do please keep the comments coming. So that was the freedom stuff. Um, tell me what's hot and not this week. Well, I'm going to combine this into one because I'm not sure whether this topic is hot or not this week. I think it might be a bit of both. And again, you should all let us know uh, what you think about this on Twitter or on our website's comment section. We've noticed a trend recently for wealth management firms to start hiring financial planners. So we decided to ask a few of them about this. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just been interesting to see what's come back. And again, I don't know, there's, there's goods and bads for this. So a, a negative is that possibly financial planning could start to lose some of its transparency, some of the transparency that you know, new model firms are all about. Yeah, sure. um, because these big uh, you know, wealth management firms, they're just more opaque on their charging structures, for example. Rory Percival, the, the renowned Rory Percival, uh, he said love that Rory. in... We, we love Rory. <laughs> in 2013 and 14, um, he noticed that wealth management firms were less RDR compliant, just overall possibly less prepared, I don't know, or didn't think that they would have to comply so much. Um, so again, you know, that casts some doubts on whether this is good or not. However, you know, if it's going to bring more financial planners into the profession, then that might be a good thing. I mean, there's not enough, really. I think we can all agree. So that might be good. Possibly it's 
a more stable career choice when you're starting out for a younger planner? I don't know, just an observation as well. Um, it's obviously nice to go into the smaller independent firms, but often they don't have the resources to train up, you know, young graduates. So, you know, we'll just have to see how it plays out, I suppose. Also, you get all the kind of uh, capability, investment capabilities that a big firm can provide. Mm. So we'll have to see, and it'd be interesting to know what you all think as well. So that is my hot or not. Hot or not? Who we knows? Shall see. Yeah. Uh, so we're now joined by one of the most vocal commentators in the pensions policy space. Uh, it's Henry Tapper, who's the founding editor of Pension Playpen, and he's also a, a director at First Actuarial. And uh, I'm also delighted to say that Will Robbins, the editor of NMA, is with us as well. So hello, everyone. Hello, Henry. Hi there. Hello, Will. Hello, Ollie. Now, Henry, let's get straight to it. There's been a, some big stuff from the FCA out. Um, what have they said? What's significant? What's insignificant? Not one, but two papers. Not one, but two. And the first says we're not going to take up this neutral stance on transfers. We're going to stay with the transfers bad. Yeah. Guilty till proven innocent. Yeah, exactly that. Mm. It was a lot of not happening. Yes. And but the other one? The other one's really exciting. Okay. Yeah, because it's about advice. And clearly the uh, for the FCA having had a good kicking at the WMP Select and elsewhere have decided to get active, front foot, all the things you don't associate with the FCA. So they're going to consider, yeah, consider banning <coughs> conditional charging. Yeah. By the time they've considered it, there may or may not be any transfers left to do. <laughs> uh, but we think the timescales on that look something like the autumn 2018. Now, Henry, what would you say, like, contingent charging, is that, I mean, how, how much of a bad idea is it? How should it, should it have been banned a long time ago? Well, it depends where you're at. I mean, if you're pro-transfers, then conditional charging is the best thing that ever happens. Uh, transfers have been jogging along, according to the ONS, at about 10 billion a year uh, since day dot. Uh, conditional charging arrives in 2016, 2017 transfers increase in 12 billion to in 2017, 34.25 billion. Yeah, some kind of causation there, eh? Mm. Yeah, so if you're pro-transfers because you're the FD of a large PLC and you want to get rid of about 4.2 billion pounds worth of bad doo-doo on your balance sheet, yeah, contingent charging is good news. Mm. If, on the other hand, you're the FCA and you reckon that 53% or 51%, as we hear today, yeah, of all transferred money is dodgy in terms of the advice given, then uh, conditional charging is bad news. We, uh, we had, we poll, we had our polled advisors at our conference this year. So these, these are like top new model advisors. But we asked them if they should... Um, ban the FCA, should the FCA, very clear question, should the FCA ban contingent charging on DB transfers? Right, the exact question. And 54% of advisors at the conference said they shouldn't, there should not be a ban. And 46% said uh, yeah, they should. Um, so that was quite, I mean, that was, you know, we'd, that was surprising in a way because these are not like, uh, you know, transfer merchants, if you will. Uh, they really aren't. Uh, I hope not. Um, but they were they were really in two minds about whether it's something that should be banned. And I don't know whether that's because they don't like the idea of a ban per se. They don't like the interfering yeah. FCA 
or whether they genuinely thought there's a big barrier to it, the, the, the cost of advice was a barrier to entry and that that was actually, you know, there was some hand-wringing going on about that. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. some really good friends of mine. Yeah, Al Rush is, is pro-contingent charging. He talks about democratization of advice, which it brings about. And, you know, from a commercial point of view, it makes lots of sense for advisors. I mean, you do not have to worry about VAT on a conditional charging structure because it's intermediated work. Yeah? Mm. Uh, you don't have to worry about uh, income tax because it's paid for from a tax-exempt fund. Yeah? Best of all, you don't have to get your client to get his checkbook out or her checkbook out because there's no check to write. Yeah? It's easy. So this frictionless work yeah, is brilliant use if you're a financial advisor. If I was a financial advisor, I would love conditional charging from a business perspective. But, and I, I, I say this honestly, I was a financial advisor. Between 1984 and two, uh, 1995, I was an FCA registered IFA working on a commission-only basis. All right. And I can tell you that when I sold my business in 1995, I couldn't get much money for it. <laughs> and the reason was it was shot through with transfers which had potential liabilities attaching to them. Yeah? And believe you me, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not turning around saying I'm white than white in any sense. Yeah? I was a guy who was trying to do a good job for my clients. I had a guy yeah, who I did a transfer for who was able to pay off his mortgage arrears and keep his house out of that transfer, who subsequently sued me. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you as an advisor out there think your clients love you, yeah, let me tell you, if we have a 30% fall in the market, if the FTSE falls below 4,500, yeah. your clients are going to be coming after you and asking you what the F you were doing, advising them to get out of that nice guaranteed pension scheme, which they could have stayed in. Mm -hmm. So I see things from both sides. My honest view yeah, is that most advisors would be well off without this condition of charging. It's an absolutely scary thing. It's not doing them any favours. None whatsoever. Mm. Um, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be um, right or proper not to give the FCA's uh, view on this. Uh, uh, our very own Elliot Smith uh, interviewed David Geel. Geel? Uh, and uh, he said, I think the rules in place already provide a good framework for providing suitable advice. What we have found is that advisors are not providing suitable advice within that framework. And what we are seeking to do is make clear what our expectations are. I think under our existing rules, suitable advice should be provided. We're just looking to make that clearer in light of what we've seen in practice. So, in long and short, I mean, has the FCA got its tail between its legs here? Well, I think so. I mean, that, that is as much of an admission of we f Oh, I didn't say that. <laughs> Beat that one out, Will. May or may yeah. Uh, as, as you're likely to get from a, from a regulator. <laughs> Let's talk about CDCs, Henry. Okay, I think we've gone as far as we wanted to on that last one. <laughs> <laughs> um, people will know from our website that you're a, a regular contributor in terms of the articles that you write, and obviously you're a blogger via the Pension Playpen, etc. Um, and over the years you've written several articles for us, and they normally uh, attract quite a bit of comment and debate. Um, so we thought we'd fire some comments at you that uh, you may not have seen before. Hit um, me, hit me. So this one's from Phil Melville, and this is from your article about uh, recently from last month about postal workers um, and their desire for collective DC, which you said was extraordinary. Uh, just to put this in some kind of context, you said the decision has profound implications for regulators, not least the FCA. 
It now has empirical evidence that more than 100,000 postmen and women could do without freedom in return for a pension they can trust. Uh, and so Phil Melville said, why is this so extraordinary? It probably reflects the thoughts of the entire population. I just wanted to get your kind of take on that. You know, how popular is this? Well, give me freedom from these freedoms, as uh, Frank Field quoted me as saying. Yeah, I, I'm a 56-year-old. I'm looking at my pension pot, and I am not looking with, with it with any great happiness. You know, it goes down, it goes up. Uh, I'm supposed to be taking an income out of it because that's what I'm going to have to do, replace the income when I'm no longer able to work. And I'm wondering how in heaven's name I'm going to solve the hardest, nastiest problem in finance, as one economist called it. So um, I think it's extraordinary that we think that we can uh, do our own drawdowns mm. successfully. Um, and I think it's even more extraordinary that a lot of advisors think that they can do it for their clients um, with the sort of ease with which they say they can. Um, I am very sceptical about drawdown. Um, and I'm not here standing up for the actuarial profession as the only people who are able to work out how to do uh, pensions. Uh, clearly they aren't, but they do have a head start because they've been thinking about things like mortality for a long time mm. because they really understand discounting. They know about cash flows. They're playing a long game. And they're playing a long game. They know what they're doing. Yeah. So why don't, why don't we listen more to actuaries when they say uh, that it is not as easy as you think to provide somebody with an income for life, a wage for life? Um, this is obviously connected with pension transfers, uh, which we've spoken about. Um, you wrote an article for us in November last year, so a few months ago, um, about the 40,000 steel workers transferring out their pensions, and you were saying, well, they will need DB advice, um, and that you, know, you can't necessarily do all this all by yourself. Uh, you said these figures suggest 40,000 steel workers are looking to transfer out. If these numbers are right, the demand for financial advice is unprecedented. Uh, the most frequently asked question on both groups, so these were Facebook groups that I believe you're members of uh, for steelworkers, is where can I find a good advisor in my area? And Andy Horlock uh, commented on that, and I, clearly he didn't think that was the kind of right question because he said, surely the question should be, where can I find a good advisor in any area in the UK who's prepared to carry out the review? So, you know, should it, you know, should advisors even be considering this kind of work then? Well, it's interesting. I think you you could find uh, active wealth management on uh, unbiased until quite recently, and uh, that's where everyone was pointed to. The trustees pointed them there, and you know, just about every other set of trustees points you towards those kinds of sites. Um, the reality is that uh, just because you're on one of these advisor websites doesn't mean to say you know what you're doing. And the corollary of what you're saying, you know, if you're going to be putting yourself forward on one of those sites as a pension transfer specialist, uh, then you are likely to get inundated with requests, mm. especially if you can do it for free, as in conditional charging. Um, so, yeah, why would anyone want to be involved in this game? And I mean, coming back to your point, why did half the advisors in your survey say, well, yes, we'd like conditional charging? It was probably because they were doing it. And what were the other half doing? Well, the answer was they probably weren't doing the transfers. Mm. Um, so they didn't have a vested interest in it. So they didn't have it. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's too clip of me. But um, I, I, certainly if I wasn't doing the transfers, I would be looking at some of the questions which the FCA are asking about transfer advice um, and saying, yeah, they got a point. Well, I looked, I looked at some of, the, some of the document this morning and it, was actually, and it, digs, it actually digs down, quite, digs down quite a lot into uh, contingent charging. That, that it, does, it does try to get out some of the different shades of mm. contingency. If, 
you see what I mean? So there's like the one where, the, so the worst is where you're a specialist and you cannot survive, your business model depends on doing the transfers. Okay, so you couldn't go a year without yeah, doing yeah, them. Yeah. Um, but there were some others where you could have paid more or, you know, disproportionately more or less depending on, you know, um, which way the advice swings. I mean, there, there are advisors, you know, that's spoken to us who will, um, you know, they've refused, they, they said, well, refuse to, to mm -hmm. give the advice unless the, unless the client joins as a full financial planning client. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, this is really interesting because I, I think, I, just, I mean, I've, I should have done something more on it, but I sort of flippantly sort of said on, on Twitter that a few weeks ago, there is that difference between getting advice and getting advice on something. Yeah. Um, so when you get advice on something, you know, this is, it, it kind of seems, you know, argue with me, but it, it seems to tap into that more transactional uh, phase, the attitude and that transactional era. I need advice on my pension or on my transfer. I need advice on uh, a mortgage. I need it. Whereas, you know, the whole, what we, you know, big, the big thing around RDR before and when NMA was set up and before and Etheridge and stuff was uh, Paul Etheridge. Um, that is, was about financial planning and looking at the holistic, you know, circumstances of a client and cash flow. And that's all fantastic stuff. But all of that drops away when a client says, bangs on your door and says, I want to be advised on something really specific. Because they're not just coming and saying, I want you to, you know, realize my dreams. <laughs> or, you know, you know, life planner, George Kinder or whatever. They're saying, I've got a, pro I've got a deadline. It's November, the whatever. I've got a deadline to get my you know, to decide what to do, otherwise I'm going to get on the PPF and I need advice on this particular matter. So that's, that's a sort of question for advisors thinking, really, if they perhaps sort of, you know, they really stuck to that holistic financial planning sort of guns and sort of said, well, I'm just refused to deal with you unless you deal with me in this particular way. Would have been a lot safer, but would the would would clients go for that? I only yeah, came here. For, I only came here for advice well, mandated yeah, yeah. by the government. Yeah. Al Cunningham's running a very good business. You know, Wingate's not taking transfers. It does transfers once every five five times out of every hundred people walking through the door. And there's plenty of great advisors out there making a good liver living from doing the kind of kinder type financial planning stuff. Yeah, but it's a lot easier if your job is to unlock doors. <laughs> Uh, because transactional stuff is, is yeah. easily repeatable. I was really struck by Ray's, uh, Ray, Ray from Niche, uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and his uh, responsible attitude. Yeah. Okay. He was telling me uh, at the time when, when I was down at Port Albert, yeah. and I was saying to him, you know, Ray, can you take this? And he's saying, no. I said, why not? He says, it's taken me 20 hours to do a transfer properly. And I'm going, right, okay, so how many are you doing a week? And he said, well, we've only got seven, whatever it is. Oh, so however many people however we've got many in the I've got can do. I'm closing yeah. because I've got too many to do. And you know, that, that is you know, incredible, incredibly responsible behavior. Uh, coming back to the CDC question, I mean, at the Royal Mail, yeah, there are 145,000 people yeah, working for that organization. They're all gonna get 13.5% you know, employer contributions into a CDC plan. That plan is going to be worth a lot of money. Is, are we really saying that there are enough IFAs out there to provide drawdown for these 145,000 posties? I don't think we are. Yeah. Uh, you look at Nest, look at the Peoples, look at Now. Those are going to be big schemes in time. Yeah. We cannot kid ourselves that drawdown is a, a product suitable for the wider market. Yeah. It's a mass affluent product. And advice is, as I've said before, it's, it's a, 
uh, sport, it, it's for a certain group of people, yeah? But the vast majority of us simply cannot afford the kind of ongoing advisory fees which are needed to support these really sophisticated drawdown products. So that's why I'm pro-CDC. It's not because I want to drive the advisors out of business. Exactly the opposite. I want to give the advisors an opportunity to work in their niche and do their job properly and not disperse their talents across a wide range of areas and find themselves in trouble. And I'm not a great fan of non-advised drawdown. I'm not particularly keen yeah, on robo-models which say they can do it for you because those robo-models are not tested. Mm. Yeah. There just hasn't been enough time on the clock to establish any kind of... Well, Jamie Jenkins was also on your podcast, and he was saying that he felt there'd been a lot of retirement, you know, innovation at retirement. Well, I have to disagree with him. I, I just don't see that innovation out there. What I see is a little tinkering around the edge, and I see some commercialization of products, perhaps yeah, some yeah. improved processes, but I don't see the wholesale change. The first yeah. proper change we've seen in the DC landscape in the last 25 years is this option to upgrade your DC plan to a DCDC plan yeah, and provide a default pathway for the masses, yeah, of which I regard myself as one, by the way. I think just Jamie's point was that, I mean, it was, it was a slickly delivered point, but Jamie's point was that you know, the innovation occurred in the year between April 2014, or March 2014 and April 2015. That was the innovation, um, you know, fair enough. But I think um, there are plenty of people out there, and I know that Ros Altman is one of them, and she seemed quite astounded, actually, by the lack of um, sort of progressive thinking, in a way, about all of this. Oh, good old Ros. She was the person who put the boots into the DA bill and stopped the thousand flowers blooming in the garden, didn't she? <laughs> I mean, she wasn't exactly the champion of innovation when she stopped it all happening in April 2000, or May 2015. She yeah. just said it was, it was just too much to do. It was sort of like, it was just too, it just put on the, literally just put on the too difficult part. Well, this is, this is the interesting thing about CDC. People think it's going to come back to that DA pay, um, section of mm. Pensions Act 2015. But the DWP are now making it clear that they aren't going to use that legislation. They're going to use the uh, Pensions Act 2011 DC legislation, what they call the money purchase legislation. But both sets of legislation exist, of course. The both, 15, that's law. Or, so, yeah. Well, 15 is this kind of white elephant thing called the defined ambition yeah. section. Yeah, which yeah. Is, so the, the, it's almost like the, the foundations did it, were put into law. Yeah, but they just but they, they just so they looked at those foundations. And they said they, it's just too hard, yeah. right? We'll go and do it easily by making CDC a DC upgrade right. and using 2011 law rather than 2015 law, and that I think is a big step forward because it means that the Royal Mail could have a CDC scheme within the timeframes that the CWU wants, which is 12 months. If we're going to look at the other way around, it's possibly a two, three-year project. So um, big, big development. Now the question is. To what extent is that going to spread? Are we going to see CDC as a general purpose vehicle which people can transfer money into from all kinds of shops and have to become an aggregator? Yeah. Are we going to see it as the back end to something like Nest or People's Pension or Now? Yeah. 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 Um, or, or are we going to see it as it is right now as a sort of uh, DC upgrade for occupational pension schemes where there's a big sponsorship from the employer? Yeah. All, all three models are out there. Interesting. And because I know Nest looked at some defaults uh, they sort of dipped their toe into default drawdown yeah. and got uh, savaged. <laughs> yeah. I think you know because, because they're sort of stepping outside. I mean, they were sort of therefore in competition with the private sector. I, I was with Nest last week, and they were saying to me that actually they they left all their options open. I, I'd read the paper, and I hadn't actually read that, but apparently they said 
Uh, yeah, we keep the option to be a CDC scheme if we wanted it. Now, Frank Field has actually said that NEST should have been set up as a CDC scheme in the first place. And, you know, they were nodding sagely. We're talking here about some fairly senior people inside of NEST. So I wouldn't discount that. But don't expect the master trust to move quickly because they've got no reason to. Let's face it, the average cash balance within a, a, a master trust pot Thousands rather than yeah, it's, it's, it's managing hundreds or thousands. Yeah, yeah. You know, their pensions aren't even as worth as much as their cars. Yeah, and generally speaking, it's when your pension starts getting worth as much as your house that people start getting really excited about yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, interesting. I have a question just on the um, you know the defined ambition being shel shelved. Um, this brings to mind because of Steve Webb's involvement. Whenever I've ever spoken with Steve or been at an event with Steve where he's made a speech, he's always, always tended to make a kind of play on the, the time factor involved in legislating on pensions and how long it takes, how long it took to get the legislation through for state pension uh, simplification, um, if it was simplification. Um, my question is, if the defined ambition legislation was so complicated that it would you know, result in a much, much longer lead time to get legislation through, why would he, if he cared so much about the timing and how long it took to get stuff through, why would he, why would he do it in that way himself? Is that some kind of roundabout way of him backing something while unofficially not backing it? Oh, well, Mr. Webb, right, um, Steve, Steve Webb is a past master yeah, at being able to have things both ways, um, which, you know, I, I adore him for because I think it's, it's an admirable trait in a, in a politician. Um, However, right, we have to live in a non-political world. We have to live in a world where we actually get things done. Yeah, yeah? Um, it suited the cert the times perfectly. He was able to put that stuff on the political agenda before leaving office in 2015. And he did a great job in doing so. Without doing that, we probably wouldn't have CDC as an idea now. Yeah, sure. But it was a very botched piece of legislation, and he did it too quickly. Okay. Yeah, that that's the truth. Actually, Pensions Acts 2011 is not such a botched piece of legislation. It was done much more slowly mm. and is therefore a much more usable piece of legislation for delivering CDC. So um, legislate in a hurry, repent at leisure. So great to hear from Henry Tapper there. Now, just to finish off, Ollie, who won Twitter this week? Well, that is a good question. The person who won Twitter this week for me was Mr. Chris Budd. Chris won, runs Ovation Finance in Bristol, an IFA firm. Um, he's very prominent on social media. He's also an author on Finance Matters, um, a successful one of that. Uh, and he told our editor, Will, uh, at the back end of last week that he was selling his business to his employees via a John Lewis-style partnership scheme. So just to explain that very briefly, that involves a business being held in a trust by the employees so they don't actually have to fork out to buy loads of shares. So it's a kind of, um, I'd say, progressive way of um, coming up with a succession plan. Um, Every once in a while, there's a story like this that we do where there is a lot of love and positive response from our readers online, uh, and it's seen as a good news story. Obviously, that's yet to be seen in terms of how it plays out, but I'm pretty confident that it is a good news story. Um, and it's clear that this is one of those stories. Um, Chris announced it via our magazine, obviously, and online as well. That tweet got 39 comments, 18 retweets, and 111 likes. He really has won Twitter. Uh, so he has won Twitter. Um, and, you know, his colleagues in the financial planning space, they, they're clearly taking it, taken to it like a duck to water. Uh, Jason Butler, uh, formerly of Bloomsbury, says, you know, well done, Chris, on pioneering the sale of your business. Um, this is the future for high-growth client-focused firms. So, 
you know, if people like uh, Jason Butler are saying that, then you know, I think we can be reasonably sure that it's um, it's probably a, probably a good idea. <laughs> and uh, other people say good things too. Victor Sachs of VS Associates said, absolutely brilliant idea. The brand lives. And Darren Cook, who contributes regularly to our magazine. Uh, Red Circle FP says, fantastic solution, great news for all concerned and ensures Ovation can continue to build and provide great outcomes for clients for years to come. So to be honest, I think that was a pretty hands-down victory. Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, so well done, Chris, and uh, we look forward to hearing what happens in the future. Yeah, lots of love for Chris there, and uh, we wish you the best from here as well. And do you get in touch if you ever want to come on the podcast, Chris, because uh, we'd love to have you on. <laughs> You can catch up with all the episodes of the New Model Advisor podcast by searching for us on iTunes or you can find us on Twitter or the hub on our website. So just search New Model Advisor.